Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. More importantly, I have a very special guest today, Dr. Jillian McCann, who is Associate Professor in the Religions and Cultures Department at Nipissing University in Canada. Uh, She is co-author of a brand new book called Yoga and Alignment, From the Upanishads to to BKS Iyengar. Jill, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Now, as they say in parts of Canada and maybe parts of the U.S., this is not our first rodeo, is it? That's right. That is correct. <laughs> um, for those of you listening, Jillian uh, McCann uh, has played a very special role in my trajectory. She was my very first um, Hindu studies prof. I was uh, I, I was a high school dropout. Sorry, no, not a high school. I was a university <laughs> dropout <laughs> after two years of a literature degree. Uh, and then I was working full time and one of my managers said, look, you need to go back and and finish uh, your degree in anything. And <laughs> I discovered intro religion the day it started at U of T. This was in 2004. It was the first Thursday in, 2000, in September. And um, it was an evening class and I walked into the class and there was a certain Jillian McCann at the head of the class. <laughs> And that was quite some time ago. And now, what, some 18 years later, I'm teaching my my first intro Hinduism class. So strange. It's so gratifying. Can I just say? You can say. I remember the first essay you wrote. I remember it very clearly. Yeah. You remember my essay from 18 years ago? I do. Yes. And Uh, I knew you were going to be a writer. So there you go. But I just wanted to say, I just wanted to make sure you're happy with the way it went. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and you told me you were, so I feel okay because I'm very hesitant to, in some ways, to encourage people on this path because it's challenging, right? But yeah, it's chal- it's challenging indeed, and um, you know the the the. I mean, so much came out of that class, and I was connected to the Vijay Institute and Mantriji, who ended up being yeah. my guru. Yeah. Um, I mean, so much. It clearly that was. Discovering that class on that day, I can't imagine uh, a life. Uh, I can't imagine an alternate universe that feels like feels like one of those moments that just you know the pressures of destiny or karma are upon you, and you you know you're going to that class one way or another. Um, uh, the regarding the, the path, yeah, it's it's a challenging path indeed, and I found this weird space as a productive independent scholar who's mm. you know connected in different ways and I find it deeply fulfilling you know I think I it's underst- more and more we're realizing it doesn't have to look one way for people uh, and I think that's really important and the online aspect has really changed things too I think for people without question 2020 was a game changer I was teaching online since about 2017 yeah and um, I have to say we talked about this earlier that that was always kind of seen as, I don't know, not quite the same. And now I think we're realizing that online teaching is just a different way of teaching. It's, it's you know, parallel. It can certainly be uh, just as impactful um, in different ways. They're trade-offs. So you, um, you suckered me into Hindu studies and here yeah, we are. Sorry about that. <laughs> 
I don't think you had a choice. I don't think you had a choice. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't think so either. Archie Don was um, Archie Don was on mat leave that year. She That's right. Yes, she got me the gig. That's we're all interconnected. I mean, a lot of the people you've had on the show, I you know, one way or another, I know them. Yeah, it's fascinating. Great. So, um, after we finished our course, um, I remember I believe it was the last day I was handing in my assignment or something. Uh, I come down to campus and handed my assignment and I visited you in your office. It was the last day and I had, I had lost my wallet. That's right. <laughs> it and was we were hilarious. running all around campus. That's right. I, forgot well, that. I just, I remember you said you were going off to a place called Alicos. Uh, it was some printing shop or something uh, near campus. And in the back of my brain, I'm like, Alicos. I remember placing Alicos. I was in Greece the summer just before the class uh, for the Olympics in 2004. I'm like, Alicos, I remember that place from Greece. Okay, there's an Alicos at, at the University of Toronto. Great. So then I, 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 I lose my wallet. I, I go track you down, right? And we go back to retrace our steps to find the wallet. We ended up finding it at the library, I believe. And I thought, yeah. yeah. And I, I remember that vividly because, you know, long before sadhana or, or mantriji or, or um, Indian spirituality formally, I just, for me, it was strange that, the, the, you know, uh, the, uh, reading signs is just something that yeah. Yeah. just, they spoke to me. So I'm like, I'm, this woman is helping me find my wallet. And I'm thinking to myself, wallet. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, at, 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 the, at the, one of the largest research libraries in North America, literally. Yeah. And I thought, okay, yeah. well, wallets are income and their identification, yeah. right? Who you are. Yeah. Like, okay, maybe yeah, there's something to this academic time. path. <laughs> no, that's divination. That's that's it. Yeah. Anyhow. Um, I think after most the- ignore those signs. That's the difference. Yeah, I mean, who knows? Who knows what's a sign and who who knows what's a projection? I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's lots of times where we mistake one for the other, but um, for years and years, it just seemed that we were in in the middle of a story and foreshadowing, and you know, the, the author's hand could be could be <laughs> could be spotted here and there. But anyhow, after the after the course, um, I had gotten to know you a bit over the summer because uh, you had invited me to this place called the Vija Institute. And the reason I bring it up is not just because of its special place in my own trajectory, but because the founder and the woman who runs the Vijay Institute, Gita Bexgard, is your co-author. So do you want to say a little bit about that to contextualize the work? Yeah, I mean, that was kind of one of those meetings of destiny for me, too, was meeting Gita. We actually were living in the same building. We were in two different flats in a house in Toronto. And we met that way. And uh I was, I said, I want to take a yoga class. And she said, well, just wait. She, she was on kind of on maternity leave herself and said, just wait and, I, and I'll teach you. So we met that way. And then we slowly became, um, we started working together at the at Vidya Institute offering courses. And she became connected with Mantraji, as you know, and then we all became part of that larger circle. So, yeah. And we've been writing together for, I think about 10 years, something like that. Did you invite me to Vijay to meet Mantraji? I mean, you invited me to Vijay, but did you know I had to meet Mantraji? I can't remember because there was Curtis in there somewhere or not. There's oh, yes. Curtis. Yes, yeah, there was yeah. Curtis, another, another student <laughs> in the course. <laughs> anyway, inside baseball, but yeah. Here, here we are. Um, so what's it like co-authoring a book with someone? 
What's that People process like? That. It, it, and, and Gita and I have laughed about this because it's one of the most, for me anyway, as a writer, one of the most intimate things you can do. So she's really the only other person I've co-authored with because it's, it's such a it, challenging isn't even the right word. You have to be so in sync with one another and trust one another in a way that's really, I think most writers, you know, we're so controlling of our material that you, it's very hard to co-write. So I can, oh, I can speak for myself, but so she, she and I, we also, we complement each other in a way that works really well. Uh, her background, she has a whole background in, along with yoga in psychology. So for me, that really complements my more uh, religious studies background. What would you say the main uh, gist or intervention or takeaway of the book is? I've been trying to think about this because I listen to some of these well, podcasts. and oh, it, uh, It's always in the moment, right? Things just come yeah, in the moment. I feel like uh, I, as a writer, I try not to impose that on anybody because I know as a reader, I, you know, you take different things from the book and you take different things at different times from the same book. But I would say from my perspective, the, the intersection with psychology is very important. And it's something that both Gita and I are very interested in. And I, I don't think it's as prominent uh, as it has been in Buddhism, that intersection between yoga and uh, Western psychology. So I'd say for me, that was probably one of the more unusual things about the book. So, uh, and we've had a lot of good feedback from people in the field of psychology. So I was happy about that. So then who would you say the book is for? Uh, well, I think, I hope we wrote it in a way that's readable. So I would say anybody who's interested in yoga, but, but specifically I would say people who are studying it, but also people who are practicing it. So, and people in psychology, I'd say those are the three main ones. One of the things that resonates in terms of some of the other work I do at um, I have an online school. Uh, it's different from the OCHS or other spaces in that it sort of bridges theory and practice. Mm. Would you say, would you, how would you, would you say that's also happening in the book that you're writing? Yeah. And I would say, actually, you just reminded me, one of the things I think it, it's a bit mystifying to me, but when people approach yoga, they often just pick out bits of it and like one limb, but it's very important that it's all the limbs. Um, it's like in the, in the Buddhist, you know, it's the, it's the eightfold path. It's not the threefold path. So the idea that it's a holistic whole and you have to do all of it. So it's theory and it's practice. I think that's, yes, that's definitely very important for me uh, because I think people tend to, just because we all have our strengths and weaknesses, we want to sort of pick one part of it that we feel comfortable in. But I think it's very important that it's saying we have to address all of it. So your mind, your body, your spirit, all of it has to be part of that journey. So for those interested in yoga, uh, would you say the book's more for those interested in yoga as a uh, spiritual path versus those who think of yoga as just postures? Yes, but I would also say one thing that was important to me was to put BKS Iyengar within the context of the larger Hindu tradition, because he sometimes gets sort of bracketed outside. But I, I don't think that's accurate. When you read his work, he's always quoting scripture, always. So uh, that has to do with, I listened to your interview with, um, is it Suzanne Newcomb? Yeah, she was talking Indeed. about uh, uh, yoga in England. And a, a weird thing happened when Iyengar went to England where... Well, it's not weird. It's just, he was told, don't talk about religion. 
for historical reasons, right? Had nothing to do with how he was practicing it. So I think it's sort of a strange thing happened where the spiritual aspect got somewhat removed. And I think it's starting to come back now. So then for those uh, who may not be aware, uh, just uh, we have a variety of audiences, uh, uh, specialists like yourself who listen, surprising to me, but I suppose, you know, what else would they listen to? Um, <laughs> and also, uh, also generalists and also uh, interested public. Um, some may be very familiar with, uh, some not at all with the name uh, BKSA Anger. Who is this figure? And, and what are you showing about him in the book? Uh, he was one of the great pioneers who brought yoga to the West. And uh, I do, we do mention it briefly, his own guru uh, was very committed to bringing yoga to householders. As you well know, it had been a practice for renunciant men until that. So you see this, that's, that's one of the things when you look back and think, okay, how did it go from being a practice for renunciant men to Western women? So uh, his guru, Krishnamacharya, was very committed to it coming to householders. And then Iyengar took it up and he had a number of people from the West approaching him. And so he opened it up to people from the West and then he opened it up to women. And that was very radical and revolutionary. Uh, so he's a very, very important uh, figure uh, in yoga's journey to the West, I would say. Do you want to talk a little bit about the structure of the book? So you yeah. can get a sense of the, the, chap- the different chapters. Yeah, we tried to follow the uh, the eight limbs. And I mean, there's some that are, there's other chapters put in there, but the, the general structure is the eight limbs. Just to, Otherwise, it just gets too amorphous. So we thought just keep with that. Was there an aspect of this research that really surprised you or stuck out in your mind by the time you were done? Uh, I would say it's, it probably shouldn't have surprised me, but it surprised me how easy it was to write. And I mean, I think it was partly because I realized I had never really written on Indian philosophy. I mean, that's my background and my training, but I had, I had written more about the interface of kind of East and West, that aspect of it. And I hadn't actually written about the philosophy. So for me, it was like coming back to my own turf. And uh, so I was, that was my surprise was how, how enjoyable it was to write it. It probably was something that was, um, uh, that was um, marinating for some time. I was going to say, you probably find this, right? In a sense, you've been thinking about it for 30 years, right? So it's not like it's it's new. It's been, it's been, you've been processing it for a long time. I think the trick is always, how do you communicate this to other people? That's always a, the, the challenge, I would say. And I, I don't know if I did that or not, or we did that or not, but. Well, I'm, I may be slightly biased because um, I, I, I speak this language, but yeah, I think I think you did a very effective job of of bridging. It's a book that strikes me as a good bridge. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you feel for folks who say look to yoga as a physical path or sort of uh, as, as postures, physical postures, mm. who might nevertheless be interested in a, in learning more. Would you say this might be a good introduction to the more? Yes, I think so. And I, I, I mean, I've worked with some of these people uh, through uh, Gita because Gita is very connected to the world of, of Iyengar yoga. And I think what happens naturally when you practice yoga is because a lot of Iyengar yoga, they do teach some pranayama. They do teach, you know, some of the scripture. So I think people have that. And then the more they practice, 
which is how they, the eight limbs work, you start to become more interested in those things. That, that seems to be a kind of a natural progression for people who do it seriously. They become more and more interested. So a lot of Gita students have been practicing yoga for 20 years. And so they're very prepared and they're wanting more of that, the classical uh, approach. So yes, I think it, it's, um, it would speak to them. Not all of them. I mean, there's some people who just want to do the physical postures and it's not going to speak to them. We have the, this debate comes up a lot. It's taken some time, but about four or five years ago, it struck me that, you know what? Yoga is a, in common parlance, a modern word that means physical postures yes. that, with some remote Indic background somewhere yeah, in there right. perhaps, perhaps you know there might be an ataraja at the altar of the studio perhaps yeah um but but, but you know, yes yeah but i've started i've personally accepted that that's what yoga means sort of that's what yoga means to many people well irrespective of the technical term irrespective of i mean morph. i don't want to go down this rabbit hole but you know i'm have you read singleton's book yoga body yeah it's a very complex history, right? And if you look at the theosophists who I was working on for years, they, when they were first coming across yoga, they were, they were adamantly against doing the postures. They were like, that is dangerous for Westerners. You shouldn't do the breath work. You shouldn't do the body work. Just do the philosophy. Just be. So there's been this strange grappling on the part of the Western world with yoga, which is what happens when two cultures collide that are so different, Right. And I think it just speaks to our cultural moment, that obsession with the body. I, I think that's very much of the moment. But is it frustrating for you? I'm just curious. Um, it, w- it once was until about, it was very frustrating for a long time, I'd say, particularly given that so many of my good friends and colleagues and co-disciples were uh, uh, yoga studio owners in Toronto and advanced yoga practitioners. And for them, yoga was this, 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 this vision of, of, of divinization of, you know, of, of spiritual ascension, if you will. Um, and so, yeah, so coming from those circles, just, you know, and then rubbing up against others who had a very different view and might even decide to leave a yoga class if someone did an invocation to Patanjali, for example. Right. Right. So that was quite triggering <laughs> for some time. And I don't know, something happened a couple of years ago and I thought, no, this means that for a number of people and it has a technical meaning in, in, in as a darshana it has a, a various connotations in the indic context and now for millions of people yeah. <laughs> it's physical posture i think that's the best way to look at it and and with any hope um for those interested it's it's sort of a gateway drug so to speak yeah no and that was how i mean i'll be honest for myself i my first yoga classes were purely purely physical when I was an undergraduate and, but it got me interested and I started reading the books on my own. So yeah, I think people, it's like we said at the beginning, people come to things as they are meant to, I think. Yeah. I feel like there's a, maybe a bit of a a double entendre or a a, a playfulness in the title yoga and alignment. Tell us about the title. What does the title uh, refer to? Double entendre. What do you mean? What do you mean? (laughs) 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 Uh, Alignment. Alignment, obviously, you know, one thinks of physical alignments, but one also yes. thinks of things oh, aligning. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Sexual, I was like, what? Um, okay. Um, alignment, yes. Because that word in, I, in the Iyengar world is very much about the physical posture alignment. 
it's the school of Iyengar is very, uh, they focus on that a lot, symmetry and alignment. But I was pulling back the focus, we were pulling back the focus to the larger tradition, right back to the Rig Veda and that idea of a higher alignment with the divine. And then that runs through everything. So it's your body, it's your mind, it's, it's your breath, it's everything. So yeah, for me, that, that word alignment was kind of the, the central concept in a sense on every, on every level. So yeah, that's right. Yeah, it seems like, you know, the, the most uh, obvious prima facie connotation would be, you know, physical alignments that's common in yoga, right? Which yeah. one could say yoga is about physical alignments. Um, and then there's this, this idea of um, alignment, you know, alignment with the Tao, with Ruta. Yeah, yeah. With Dharma, like being being plugged in, so to speak, or in alignment, yeah. in, in accord with... Um, with uh, I think it's a beautiful yeah. word. And I think it's a word that speaks to people because later when I Googled, I was like, oh, there's so much on alignment I didn't realize. So I probably shouldn't have, you probably shouldn't have used it. But um, it, it's, I think it's a word that speaks to people on some level. In, in between these two, in terms of one's um, alignment with capital T truth or physical alignments, the book is accomplishing a sort of alignment in terms of yoga's reception or yoga and scholarship, right? It's 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 it, it strikes me as a bit of a subtle um, intervention, if you will, in terms of talking about yoga as. Uh, uh, well, as, a, as more than physical postures, but also um, a particular uh, brand of yoga and a particular figure and that sort of social alignment of how that came to be. So I think it is a clever title, actually. Thank you. I don't know if the Sanskritists like it, but... <laughs> Yes, because you know, really, we're gonna please we're gonna please everyone. With, you can't with, please you know, everyone. You know, what you know what, what's um? I can't remember the name of my the goddess in the king in Indian myth. I'm sure many people are are asking why does he use the word myth, right? You know, did you whether, did you get the blowback? No, no, I'm saying I'm sure I'm all things. You can tell me later. No, no, I mean it's a great title, but someone's <laughs> gonna be upset about it. I assure you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely, and I mean that's fun too, right? I, I mean the debate is always fun. That's you know, as you said, even the word yoga, people get, you know, very uptight about it. So, yeah. I was leading a, a tutorial for the, um, I do uh, tutorials for the students at the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies. And we spent half an hour yesterday with uh, one of the students who comes from a, a yoga background mm. uh, talking about whether uh, yoga means to separate or if it means <laughs> to, the exact opposite to, yeah. to, to yeah. unite. Yeah. Right. And, exactly. and, and for those listening uh, in your training, which is it? <laughs> Very funny. Put me on the spot here. Well, if you're going by Samkhya, it, it isn't to unite. Depends on, on what philosophical school you're, you're talking about. Right. And I think that's why if somebody comes up and says, it's this, it, I'm suspicious immediately because it's not that simple. So a lot of the books are like, it's to yoke, it's to yoke, but uh, there's many different versions of the word. So you're not, you're not drawing me on that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Not at all. Not at all. Um, Is this work that you plan to continue? Are you continuing in this field of research? Uh, I always, I mean, this is something that's also personal for me, but um, Gita and I are working towards uh, how we're going to build it out into more um, workshops and things like that. Because I did want to say that the last part has to do with models of the mind. And that was very, very important for us that uh, both of us have 
Gita studied psychology more formally, but I've also studied psychology. And so that idea that one of the most profound things for me that comes out of the yoga tradition is it gives us vocabulary for states of mind that just don't exist in the English language. We don't, we just don't have any language around it. So uh, for me personally, I found it so useful to have these different ways of talking about how you move out of certain states of mind uh, effectively. Uh, and I think that that has profound impact in terms of people's lived experience or it can, you know, to move from a clouded, agitated mind to a settled, clear mind. I mean, that's just such a profound practice if you can, if you can achieve it. Fascinating. Is there anything else about the book that you'd like to touch on? Um, I'm just really interested to see the reception, to be honest with you, because I do think, as I said, I think people take what they want from a book and what they need from a book. Um, I know some of the psychologists that work with Gita have said that, you know, this is something that they can use in their, in their classes. So I'm, I'm hoping that's, that's true. And I hope that it works to um, bring out, as I said, more of the psychology of the yoga tradition. I would, I would like to, to see that. Um, because I think it can get lost because the, as you know, the, the, the vocabulary is very technical. So if the average person just looks at it, it's, it's difficult, right? So trying to, now that you run, you run into danger with that of equating it with things that it doesn't equate to. So I, I you know, I, we were aware of that, but I, I hope it, as we said earlier, it bridges that a little bit. Fantastic. Well, thank you for appearing on the podcast today. Okay. Take care, Raj. For those listening, we've been speaking with Dr. Jillian McCann, um, who's co-author of uh, Yoga and Alignment, co-author along with uh, Dr. Gita Bexgard. Um, Yoga Alignment is a brand new book published by Cambridge Scholars Publishing. Um, until next time, stay safe, uh, uh, keep listening, and keep contemplating um, this thing called yoga. <laughs>